And as you have a seat, go ahead and take out your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Uh, this past week, my uh, wife, Amy, and their kids, they, uh, they all headed out and they went to Florida to visit her family. And they left me for the week here. Uh, yes, very sad, very sad. <laughs> and, and I got to the first evening and I came home and I realized I had completely forgot to meal plan at all. So, so here I was, here I was looking into my refrigerator going, what am I going to eat tonight? And then in a moment, I'm like, I can eat whatever I want to tonight in whatever order I want to eat it and in whatever quantity I want to eat it in. And so I started doing that. I took, I took all my favorite foods and coffee and ice cream to chase it all down. I sat down on the couch and I watched the game and I ate to my heart's content. And then I instantly regretted it. And I realized that I am 46 years old, not 18, and, and I have to meal plan, otherwise dessert for me is Tums. <laughs> and and I, I had regret this week. And that's just, a, that's a silly regret. And we all have some silly regrets. That hairstyle you had in 1989, you should regret that. You know, staying up too late last night, which is going to make it hard to sit through the pastor's sermon today. Regret. Okay, simple regrets. But, but beyond that, okay, we all have significant regrets too in our lives, don't we? We all have those things in our lives that we wish we didn't. Uh, we've all messed up in, in big ways, so big even at times that on the other side of it, it might even seem hopeless and unforgivable. And if you have ever needed forgiveness or found it difficult to forgive or to receive forgiveness. I hope that today, through God's word, he will speak hope into your life. Uh, we, we have slowed way, way down in the gospel of John. And if you remember, last week was the first part of chapter 18. We saw that Jesus' identity and his control and his purpose, and he was arrested, the first part of his arrest, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's where we are going to pick up this morning. Father, if you would graciously, graciously speak to us this morning through your word, Lord, and change us and impress us with yourself and your beauty for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. John chapter 18, let's start in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews, or the Jewish leaders is what that was, arrested Jesus and they bound him. And first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. He didn't even realize what he was prophesying there. Okay, so uh, where, where are we at? Okay, here's what's happened. Jesus was in Gethsemane. He was um, betrayed by Judas. He's arrested. Matthew chapter 26 tells us that after that, the disciples abandoned him. They fled they ran, okay? And now they're taking him to Annas. Uh, Annas is the, the former high priest, actually. They still call him the high priest, but he was the former one. Five of his sons were high priests, and now his son-in-law, Caiaphas, 
is the appointed high priest. So honest is this, he's this patriarch of this powerful family of priests. And we're actually not sure how this all happens. You put the details together and it seems as if they're in Annas' house at one point and then Caiaphas' house. But as what may have been the case is these two houses were nearby and they actually shared an adjoining courtyard where a lot of this is going to happen. In fact, we're going to put up my fun map again to help us orient ourselves. If you remember, down in the, down in the left, bottom left, the southwest corner here is where the upper room was. That was chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 of John. At some point, they start walking across the southern part of the city here. They exit out of the city, down through the valley, over the brook, and then up into the top right there, into the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember the soldiers, religious leaders, Judas comes probably from the fortress there that's north of the temple. They come up into Gethsemane. The betrayal happens there. The arrest happens. The disciples flee, okay? And now they take Jesus and they bring him back down and they're back down here in the southwest corner at the house of Annas where this uh, type of preliminary hearing is happening. And in case you, in case you wonder, uh, this is not how things typically happened under Jewish law, okay? That's not what's happening here. This is an off-the-books trial of sorts that's beginning, and it's gonna happen in some phases, okay? Let's keep going. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into this courtyard of the high priest, this kind of open-air courtyard between these homes. But Peter stood outside of the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Okay, so the other disciple in this is probably John. John typically refers to himself as the other disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved. We see it multiple times here for the rest of this gospel. And somehow, John is connected to this powerful family. Uh, some people think that it might have been through his father, Zebedee's business associations. Um, other people say that it could have been through his mother's family connections to the priestly line. What did that look like? Well, remember, his, his mother is Salome. Salome is related to Mary. Mary is related to Elizabeth. Elizabeth is married to Zechariah, who was a priest, okay? So it could have been through there. We don't know. We just know that John's got the connections, and so John goes in, Peter's stuck at the door, so John has to come back and say, nope, this guy's coming in with me, all right? Keep going, verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are one of this man's disciples. Wait, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And Peter said, I am not. First, denial. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing, and they were warming themselves there, and Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Look at verse 17. Notice what this servant girl says. She says, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Also. By saying also, she's indicating she knew John's connection to Jesus. She wants to know if Peter's connected to him also. And what's Peter say? I'm not. That I am not 
should ring really loud in contrast to what we saw last week when Jesus declared, I am. Like, I, he's so quick to do this, isn't he? It's just, like, it's just like, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? I'm not. That just flows right off of his tongue. Like, you want to stop and think about that for a second, Peter? Consider what you're about to say. So quick to deny Jesus. And, and what a pendulum swing. Remember last week in the garden? I mean, here's Peter swinging a sword at people's necks. All right? A little bit later, not the case. He goes from overzealous in the garden to cowardice in the courtyard. I, I've wrestled with this this week. I'm like, why? Why this? I mean, how this swing? And, and ultimately, we're not, we're not sure. But as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know, maybe the gravity of this situation is finally sinking in for Peter. And remember, all the disciples, like, they fled. They're cowering somewhere in fear. And only he and John have even followed from a distance in order to see what's happening with Jesus. And maybe, maybe he's uh, coming down here from the adrenaline rush of the moment uh, with the soldiers and swords and chopping off ears and ears being healed. And he's recognizing now, it's sinking in now, just how serious and terrifying this is. And he's realizing that his life is in jeopardy, that Jesus's life is in jeopardy. And it's probably pretty scary. And then what's he do in verse 18? He finds his way over to this group by the fire. By the way, this group is probably the very people that had just arrested Jesus. Here for the rest of the evening while the sham of a trial is happening. And what's Peter doing? He's just blending in, just warming his hands by the fire with everybody else. Keep going, verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, he said, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? The, the trial, the examination of sorts here, has begun. High priest asked him about two things. One, he asked him about this category, his disciples, which by the way, notice Jesus never answers anything about his disciples. He's still protecting them. And then he asked him about his teaching. Why? Well, let's see if we can find something in his teaching that's actually gonna allow us to legitimately have reason to kill this guy. Now, I, I, wanna, I wanna remind us where we're at. We're in the midst of Passover week. In Jerusalem, okay? Jerusalem has swelled to probably 10 times its size. There could be more than a million additional people 
in the city over this week to celebrate the Passover. And we need to be reminded, what is Passover? And we've talked about this before in John, but it's so essential for us for these next coming weeks, okay? Passover, remember back in Exodus. Boy, we keep going back to Exodus in John. It's kind of like John was trying to make some connections back to Exodus with all of this and help us see it, all right? Back in Exodus, God goes to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, tell him, let my people go. I am is going with you. You're going to lead my people out of bondage, okay? And the Lord's like, I'm going to send these plagues that are going to convince them that they need to let you go and demonstrate my power over the gods of Egypt and exactly who it is that's taking you out of the land of Egypt, okay? And we're nine plagues into this. Tenth plague is coming, and that's where it brings us to Exodus chapter 12. It says this. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbors shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each person can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Imagine that sound at twilight. As every family in Israel, amongst the people of Israel, goes out and slaughters their lamb for sacrifice. And then you shall take some of the blood from that spotless lamb and you will put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat. And this is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord and the blood shall be a sign for you on the on the houses where you are and when I see the blood I'll pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt and when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised you shall keep this service and when your children say to you what do you mean by this you'll say it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but he spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and they worshiped. Okay, the Lord's gonna pass through in this plague, okay, on Egypt. And they say from the the 10th day, take this lamb to the 14th day when you will slaughter this lamb at twilight. What happens in those four days? Here's what happens. An examination happens. Why? Because this lamb must be the right sacrifice, the sacrifice given in obedience to the Lord. And his requirement of that lamb is that that lamb be found to be spotless, a flawless lamb, a perfect sacrifice, right? And then you will take that blood and it will be over the houses and demonstrate what I have done on your behalf and I will pass over you and deliver you from this judgment. Why is that important for this passage here today? For this reason, the examination of the lamb is beginning. 
and he will be found to be spotless. John 1, 27, behold the lamb of God, the spotless lamb, the perfect sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. In verse 20 and 21, we see Jesus answering the high priest. And basically is what he's saying. He's like, I've spoken openly. In other words, he's saying, my private teaching has aligned with my public teaching. There's no secret plotting, no secret hiding, no conspiracy to overthrow the government and its power happening behind the scenes. None of that. In verse 21, he goes, why do you ask me? (laughs) He's like, go find some credible witnesses. Ask them to verify my story. Uh, Witnesses are crucial to trials, aren't they? But they were especially important in Jewish law. I think is what we have here happening in these verses is some more of of Jesus' sarcasm. In this, he's like, I'm certain you want to comply with the law and thoroughly investigate this. So why don't you pull together some legitimate witnesses? Oh, wait, you know I openly taught. You know I have nothing to hide. You don't care. That's why you're doing this in the middle of the night in a secret off-books interrogation and not in accordance with the law. That's what you're really doing. And he nailed it. You know how we know that? Because in verse 22, the officer strikes him and says, is that how you answer the high priest? The irony and the sadness of that, huh? He strikes Jesus with the hand that he had formed. In protecting the high priest, he strikes the true and the greater high priest. Verse 24 says, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. John John omits the next two steps of the trial. Um, From here, they go to Caiaphas' house, the actual, at that time, high priest who has to sign off on this for another illegal in the middle of the night trial. From there in the morning, they're gonna, he's gonna stand before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish high court and governing body. Um, John doesn't give us the account of either of those. He's gonna end up going from this straight into the account with Pilate. Uh, Verse 25, let's keep going. Now Simon Peter was standing and was warming himself by the fire. And they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I'm not. Denial number two. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. Okay, we're getting really close now. (laughs) He's like, didn't you chop off my relative's ear? Did I not see you in the garden with him, he asked. And Peter again denied it. And at once, the rooster crowed. In a moment, Peter forgets the last three years of his life. He forgets that Jesus called him a rash, simple fisherman, to follow the Messiah as his rabbi and be part of his inner 
group. He forgets Jesus' love and his teaching. He forgets how he's lived and served alongside of him. He's forgotten his hope and the miracles and the prayers and his worship and his faith all in this moment of self-preservation. And boy, from this, you can see it, it is a true statement. Sin indeed makes us stupid. And I haven't done this much, um, but I want to do it here. I want to jump from here back into Luke really quick. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, I'll read it. Luke chapter 22. Um, the Gospels, uh, each of them communicates about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, okay? But the way that they communicate is they communicate it under an inspiration of the Spirit from different angles, Okay? And so their stories are layered together with differing types of details that, that really weave together the whole account for us. And they each tell it from a particular perspective because they're trying to make a point. And so in John, I've liked to stay in John. All right? But I really want us to see what happens here in Luke 22. So Luke 22, down in verse 31, is the first spot. This is happening earlier in the evening when Jesus is predicting to Peter that he will deny him. And Luke records these details in verse 31. He says, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go, to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you and that you there is you all. He's demanded to have you all, all the disciples, so that he might destroy you, sift you like wheat. But, it's, but Simon, I'm praying for you. I'm petitioning the Father on your behalf so that you will stand firm in your faith. But you won't initially. But then he says this, but when you have turned, that word turned, it's typically connected to passages of scripture talking about repentance. Why? Because repentance is this idea of turning from my sin and turning to Jesus, right? Turning from what is unrighteous to what is righteous. And he's like, when you have turned again, Peter, strengthen your brothers. Down in verse 59, we see the account of Peter's last denial, the third one. And it says, after an, hour, after an interval of about an hour. That's interesting. Because what happens initially just off the tip, tip of, of, of Peter's tongue, like just flows, I am not, I am not. Like Before he denies him this last time, he has an hour to think about what he's doing. And still another insisted saying, certainly this man also was with him for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And Peter went out 
and he wept bitterly. What was in that look? I don't know about you, but my immediate reaction, sadly, is I picture condemnation in that look, right? Which is so often what we imagine in the eyes of Jesus. But I don't think that's right. Uh, Even the word here, look, typically when it's used, connected to Jesus, it's used when he's looking on someone with concern and with compassion and with love. And based based on that, based on his prayer for Peter, based on the pattern of Jesus's life, based on what we're gonna see over these next few chapters, based on Jesus's willingness to walk towards the cross, I don't think there was condemnation in his eyes. I think there was sorrow and hurt and compassion and love. I think John 3.17 was in Jesus' eyes. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world through him might be saved. I think that look communicated to Peter this. Now, Peter... Now you know why I have to do this. And although Peter's weeping here is meant to actually communicate to us his proper remorse and regret and repentance, unlike Judas, what could be worse than this? I mean, is there a worse sin than denying the Son of God while he's going to his death for you? And then the consequences that come out of that, this is written about in scripture where it's gonna be studied across all the generations, where your failure is just gonna be held out for everyone to see. I don't know if there's much worse than that. There's two things I think we need to remember, okay? First one is this. We've all denied Jesus. We have all denied Jesus. We have all at some point and in some way said, I am not. Maybe we've done that with our words. Blatantly. Nope, I'm not his disciple. Typically though, I think it's, it's often in the omission of our words, right? We stand warming our hands by the fire, quietly, not in wisdom, but in fear of the repercussions if it gets out that we are a follower of Jesus Christ. Not only do we deny him with our words, we deny him with our actions. We return to our sin over and over and over again. This, This week I was in Proverbs 26. It says this, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. That is graphic and accurate. We choose to live in rebellion against him. We choose to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin rather than the joy of obedience to our king. And we thereby demonstrate with our actions that our our will and the world's way and our stuff is more worthy than Jesus, which is really the heart of sin, isn't it? It's a worship problem. 
It's misplaced worship. We, we hold up as most valuable ourselves and things and other people instead of Christ. And our sin, not Peter's, our sin has Jesus on trial. Our sin will crucify him. Our sin, every one of them, is a slap in the face of our Savior. His worth and his holiness and his kindness and his will. We have all denied Jesus. But here's the other thing we need to remember. Forgiveness is available through Christ. Forgiveness is available through Jesus Christ and not some cheap forgiveness. It's costly. You know why? It's the highest of offenses. Our sin is ultimately sin against the holy God. And the price of forgiveness, therefore, is the highest. The cost of forgiveness is the life of the Son of God. And I think what Peter sees in the eyes of Jesus in that moment is he sees the cost of his forgiveness. Jesus, in that very moment, is willingly standing in the midst of this sham of a trial, being slapped by his creation to demonstrate his love and his compassion and his mercy and his grace, not just to Peter, to us. Hear me, hear me, hear me. No betrayal, no crime, no sin, no failure, no idolatry, no faithlessness, no doubt, and no denial is beyond the forgiveness of Jesus. If you will turn from your sin and turn towards him in repentance and faith, he will forgive you and he will change you. How do we know that, Nate? Because that's why he was going to the cross and because he promises that he will do just that. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He does what he promises he will do, and he is just. How can he be just, Nate? Because he took the penalty in our place. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is bound so that we might be released from the shackles of sin. He is examined so that he might be found to be what he is, the perfect, spotless sacrifice, the true Passover lamb. And Isaiah 53 tells us he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. What kept Peter going? after this failure. Like, how do you come back from this? Here's what kept him going. The gospel of Jesus Christ. I want us to fast forward 30 years from this point. Okay, we're sitting in about 33 AD, okay? 30 years beyond that. Now we're in the mid-60s AD. 
okay? And we have Peter. And what's Peter doing? Peter is writing a letter to believers. He's writing a letter to the church. Actually, we have this letter in Scripture. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he writes a letter, and we called it First Peter. Creative. <laughs> what's he tell the church in this letter? Does he tell them, I ruined my life that day. I went too far. I was too far gone. I was never the same. I never recovered. I'm a failure. I'm worthless. God never used me ever again. I was never forgiven and I never forgave. I was unloved. I never had victory over that sin. There was no coming back from my denial to Jesus and I had nothing left to live for after that. You know why it's interesting, why we need to ask those questions? Those are the things Judas said. That's not what we find Peter saying. What do we find Peter doing in this letter? We find him encouraging believers to cling to hope in Christ in the midst of suffering and persecution. And here's what I want us to do. We're gonna put some of these passages on the screen and I want us to, to look at them to close out the service this morning. And the reason why is because I want us to see what God has been doing in Peter's life. I want us to see the truth he's repeating to the church and to himself as he writes this. And I want us to see it right on the heels of having sat in Peter's greatest failure, the denial of the Son of God, okay? So let's look at these. We're gonna put them on the screen so you can see them. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Oh, that's awesome. He doesn't open this. I'm Peter. I'm the one that said I'm not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Nope. He says, I am Peter, pen to paper, quill to parchment, whatever it was. Right here for everybody to see, memorialized in Scripture, not hiding any longer. I am Peter, an apostle, a called one, a sent one, one of the original 12 of whom? Of Jesus Christ, that's who. Later in that chapter, verse 18, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. How were you ransomed? Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Chapter two, verse nine, but you are a chosen race, church, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim, not deny, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 24 in the same chapter, he, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Isaiah 53, by his wounds you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep. I, Peter, was strained like sheep. But have now done what? Re 
turned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That sounds like Luke chapter 22, chapter three, verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you? (laughs) Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy and always, always being prepared to make a defense, to have a response for that girl at the gate, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it, do it with gentleness and respect, not with a sword. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Because it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, the I am. For the unrighteous, the I am nots. That he might bring us to God. Chapter five, verse eight. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Why, your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. That's an answer to a prayer that Jesus prayed so many years before. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. But after you have suffered a little while, with this the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. He will himself restore you and confirm you and strengthen you and establish you to him. Be the dominion and power forever and ever. Amen. See the transformation of Peter. It's possible. 30 years later, he's resting in the forgiveness and the hope found in Jesus Christ. And no matter how you have denied him with your words or with your actions, your sin does not have to be the end of your story. Forgiveness and restoration is possible through Jesus Christ by grace through faith in him. And now, as a a people who have experienced his forgiveness, we can forgive in return. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to end the service this way as the worship team comes. Uh, We're just going to take a minute as they come. We're just going to spend some time just, just with you, just in this minute, with the Lord. And if there's any unconfessed sin in your life right now, deal with it with him this morning. Drag that sin out of the darkness and into his light. He already knows it's there. Pull it out of the darkness and confess it to him and repent and bask in his forgiveness and his grace and his restoration. And then we will worship out of that.